with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Here is the infallible, inspired, and errant word of God. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, you do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or righteous or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, give us your grace to meditate upon your precepts and to delight in your statutes and to not forget your word. That as we meditate upon these words and as you instruct us in these truths, that we would never wander from your commandments, but that we would be guided by them throughout our whole life, that we may live to the glory of our great God. Through Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's really no secret that we live in a very litigious society. By that way, by the way, if you don't have a dictionary with you this morning and you haven't come across that word litigious, it simply means we live in a lawsuit happy world. The proof of that is found in many places. A couple of anecdotal facts will help reinforce the statement I've just made. As of 2002, there are five times as many lawsuits filed in this country as there were in 1960. By the end of 2007, there were 1,143,358 lawyers practicing law in our country. Just to give you a few more mind-boggling Facts and figures, there are a number of cases and fraudulent cases and seemingly ridiculous reasons given for bringing suit against neighbor, particularly in civil court. came across an article last week that listed the ten most frivolous lawsuits. Some of them were quite humorous, as you'll see in a moment. In 1991, for instance, a man sued Anheuser-Busch for $10,000 because he did not experience in his life what he saw in the commercials on TV. More humorously, Robert Lee Brock sued himself for $5 million for emotional anguish due to getting drunk and perpetrating crimes against other people. 
And then in 2005, the recording industry of America sued an 83-year-old woman, didn't deliver her uh, the notification of lawsuit until after she died, and the suit alleged that she downloaded 700 songs and distributed to all her friends, only to find out that the woman never had a computer, let alone an internet connection. All kinds of frivolous lawsuits are constantly uh, being filed in uh, our court cases and our courtrooms across America. We live in a very litigious society. But what's not so funny and which is uh, fairly disturbing is another fact. That out of the massive lawsuits that are filed and brought to court in our country, probably on a conservative side, four million are annually filed by Christian, as many as 8 million, to the tune of 20 to 40 billion dollars every year. You see, living in the culture and society in which we live has shaped and influenced Christian practices to a tremendous degree. Well, it's not unlike the situation that Paul addresses in Corinth. And you can see that uh, he is terribly disturbed that the Christians in Corinth are being shaped by a litigious Corinthian society. And his outrage is indicated, you can't really see it here in your English translation, but in the original it says, how dare you? Those are the very first words in the original text. How dare you? And then as you go on to read the rest of the sentence in view of the context, you realize that the how dare you has to do with the fact that the Corinthians are bringing lawsuits against each other in civil courts. We want to examine that this morning. Paul's prohibition against Christian taking a Christian to court. You see, the problem is described here in verse 1. And I want us to be clear about the problem. The problem is not the use of civil or rather criminal courts. It's with the use of civil courts. Uh, The language in the passage indicates that. It says, if anyone has a case against his neighbor, and by the way, neighbor there doesn't refer to the person living next to you. It has to do with Christians. I don't know why it's translated poorly like this in the New American Standard. But it's referring to taking another Christian. It says a case against a neighbor or a fellow brother, that would indicate by the language that it's a civil matter. Verse 2, Paul speaks of the smallest law courts. Literally, uh, those were cases that dealt with petty issues. And verse 3, again, we have the court system dealing with cases that are described as pertaining to matters of this life. Again, they're not criminal proceedings. I don't make that very clear. The apostle is not forbidding Christians uh, to make use of criminal courts when crimes have been perpetrated against them. What the apostle here is upset about is that the Corinthian Christians are taking each other to court. And there are several reasons why Paul is upset about that. And the first reason why the Apostle Paul would be upset about that is because of the nature of the Corinthian courts. And you can see that indicated in verse 8. He says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. And you do this even to your brethren. That gives us a window into the nature of the courts that Paul speaks of here in Corinth. They were stacked towards the rich. 
the rich uh, would bribe juries. They were notorious for that. And they would manipulate justice in the court system to perpetually turn it into their favor. And what would happen at the end of the court hearing is that almost in all cases, the poor or the middle class were defrauded out of income and property and possessions, while the rich, who already had plenty of those things, took those from the poor and abused and oppressed the people who were less economically privileged. And they were doing that to people who they went to church with on Sunday mornings. Paul's outraged by that. The reason why Paul is outraged on that is further that the judges that preside over these cases are unbelievers. You see that in verse 1. He says, you dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not the saints. You can see there in the pairing and the contrast that the apostle is concerned about the person who's presiding over the case. That they're not believers, that they're not Christians, that they don't possess the Spirit of God. They're called the unrighteous. You see him coming back to that idea in verse 6. He says, you go before unbelievers. And then in verse 9, you have the Apostle Paul again referring to the unrighteous. And this time, characterizing them according to ten very sinful public crimes or rather sins. And so, the Apostle is concerned about the kinds of people that are presiding over the court cases. And because of the fact that the people who preside over the court cases are not Christians, Paul sees that as a significant reason why we shouldn't take our cases to civil court against another believer. And I want to just say right there, since the Apostle Paul doesn't give us any further indication as to why that's a problem, we should probably uh, leave it there. Uh, Wisdom would tell us that it would be wise to simply leave the matter there and not try to read more into it. Because as you know, the Apostle Paul has no problem with Christians using criminal courts. And we would assume that in this era, that it would almost be predominantly, if not 100%, comprised of unbelieving judges. And if he didn't have a problem with him adjudicating cases in that uh, venue, in criminal uh, court Uh, It would seem that they do have some basic ability to make important decisions. But Paul is concerned about it being unrighteous judges presiding over these civil cases. I think another reason why the Apostle Paul is so horrified by this and and, uh, forbids and prohibits them is because uh, it puts the gospel and the church to shame. It puts the gospel and the church to shame. Verse 6, I think, uh, gives us uh, some warrant to believe that that is another concern. He says, brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. You see, it's the unbelievers that are presiding over the cases, and then the Christians are bringing their suits against one another, and uh, all the dirty laundry, if you will, is being aired out in public. And this is a problem. Because what happens at the end of the day is that the people who are presiding over this hear all of the nitty gritty and of all the problems that are in the lives of these people and it reflects very poorly on the church. As if there weren't uh, wise people in the church. As if Christ really didn't change lives (coughs) through His Gospel. And so Paul uh, seems to be concerned about it for uh, those reasons. Now, what Paul does here is he gives us an alternative. Excuse me. He gives us an alternative. And you can see that in verse 4. He says, If you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? 
Now, <clears throat> we rarely have to do this, but we have to correct the New American Standard at this point. Uh, really, how this sentence should read is if you have to set up law courts, set up the lowest or the despised in the church. But Paul is not referring to uh, setting up the lowest or despised of secular society. Uh, what he's saying here is here's the alternative. Here's the alternative. There truly has been a problem where a civil uh, suit needs to be filed. Thank you. Instead of uh, taking that to secular court, what the Apostle Paul is calling upon Christians to do is to set up uh, tribunals in their own churches comprised of Christians who will be able to listen to the matter. He says set it up, and I believe that that's the proper translation. I'm not just <clears throat> coming up with that translation on my own, but I believe it's the proper translation because of what's going on here in the context. If you look up at verse 2, uh, you will see here the Apostle says, Do you not know the saints will judge the world? Yet if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Uh, Paul here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. And he says here, and he assumes it, that this will be the case, that the saints will be involved in judging at the end day, or the last day, when Christ returns to set up judgment. He doesn't fill in all the blanks for us. We'd have to go to the place in the Word of God, and that's not terribly filled in other places either. But Paul makes an assumption here that Believers will be involved in some way in the judgment at the last day. And he says, if you would be entrusted by Christ to be involved in that kind of adjudication at the last day, then clearly you must have the ability to preside over courts pertaining to small, petty, civil matters among yourselves. Verse 3. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Again, a a greater to the lesser argument here. The Apostle Paul says you uh, will one day judge angels in the last judgment. And uh, we would speculate that this has to do with fallen angels. And Paul again doesn't fill in the blanks here. He assumes that the Corinthians are aware of this particular calling of the saints at the end. And here yet he says, if you're going to judge them, how much more uh, ought you not be able to have the ability to stand in judgment over small matters between uh, two brothers? Then in verse 5, you have another indication of the fact that the Apostle Paul would have the church, or rather Christians, deal with presiding over judgments in these cases. And he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? I think that's enough argumentation. I think it sets up the point the Apostle Paul is making here, is that Christians need to deal with their own civil problems inside the church. We need to deal with our own problems inside the church. And by the way, this was not at all uncommon in Paul's day. Among the Jews, they uh, would never have considered taking their civil issues to uh, the Gentile magistrate. They dealt with all kinds of matters in-house because they thought it would be blasphemous to go and take part in the civil courts. And they also didn't want to bring up their problems to the unbelievers around them. And so the Apostle Paul here is making the assumption that the church should be filled with people who have the basic ability to make distinctions between right and wrong. That's all it is. 
There's the assumption that there will be within the churches people who have spent time cultivating wisdom and who are capable of making wise and reasonable judgments in matters where neighbors are disputing with each other. That they would have cultivated a wisdom that is tempered by moderation. That they would have a wisdom that has been instructed by the light of nature and experience in the word. That they would have a wisdom that would help them settle disputes in such a way that would produce unity at the end rather than division. (coughs) So Paul here, based on these assumptions, commands the church to deal with its own problems. To resolve its own civil disputes. You say, well... (coughs) What does this mean? Well, it means that if you have problems with your neighbor, and there would be a range of them that would actually fit under this case. Personal injury cases against a Christian. Divorce settlements. Child custody settlements. Evictions. Malpractice. I mean, really, you could be fairly creative. The list would go on and on in terms of the civil issues. And what the Apostle Paul commands here is that Christians, if they have a problem with another Christian, deal with it in the church. Calvin wisely points out that Paul is not prohibiting uh, that Christians would be able to make use of uh, the opinions or the expertise of lawyers or judges, even though they weren't unbelievers. He says their advice here is not excluded. He says the apostle here does not hinder Christians from uh, applying to lawyers. Calvin goes on to say what he finds fault with in the Corinthians is simply this, that they carry their disputes before unbelieving judges as if they had none in the church that were qualified to pass judgment. I realize that this goes very counter to our society today. I realize this goes very counter to how we even do things in the church today. Again, go back to the 4 to 8 million conservative estimate of Christians using civil courts to sue each other. It's contrary to how we do things. But what the Apostle Paul says, for the sake of the gospel, a primary reason is that Christians learn to deal with their problems inside the church. Very interesting how Paul makes this case here, but then he doesn't simply leave it there that Christians should deal with uh, their problems within the church. In verse 7, he makes it even more difficult. And this is really the second alternative to taking a brother to court. He says in verse 7, actually then it is already defeat for you. That you have lawsuits with one another. He says, why rather not be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded. And the Apostle Paul here takes it to another level entirely. He says, rather than taking your problems to the magistrate, or rather than taking your problems even to fellow Christian believers to sort them out, to come to uh, what you believe is a reasonable decision, he says, why not rather just be wronged? You see, that's a lot more difficult than not suing in the civil court. He says, why not just allow yourself to be injured? Why not allow yourself to be defrauded by a brother? It's going to take some time to work with that particular idea, but I think, first of all, uh, obviously it's an enormous challenge, but what the Apostle Paul is working with here is the uh, New Testament ethic 
which is binding upon all believers, which we already read about this morning in the law, is that uh, we are to love each other as Christians. We're to love each other, and if we love each other, we are to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. And the reason why we're to allow love to cover a multitude of sins, particularly when it pertains to believers, is because God has forgiven us a multitude of sins. I'll come back to this, but by the way, it's no mistake that in this passage you have one of the most vivid illustrations of the power of the gospel. But for years I've read this passage and I've marveled at that such were some of you. And I said, well, come back to that. Such were some of you. You were just exactly like all the unrighteous people with all their unrighteous deeds. The Apostle Paul uh, explains and describes here in verses 9 and 10. And I always wondered, why would that passage be sandwiched in between uh, a passage having to do with lawsuits and a passage having to do with sexual purity? And the answer is because the Apostle Paul is trying to say the way that Christians ought to deal with each other ought to be tempered by love. You see, he's laying down the motivation and the reason for why the Christians are to be able to fulfill this terribly difficult command in verse 7. Why not rather just be wronged? You see, the gospel is about life change, but it's more than about life change. It's about our record change. God forgives us of enormous sins. And so the assumption is that we need to behave in the same way towards others who've been forgiven by God along with ourselves. And so the first basis or ability or reason why or way in which we're going to fulfill this command is to realize the ethic of love. The second basis upon which we apply this particular alternative the Apostle Paul gives us is because that God sees and knows everything. God, it's, God sees and knows everything. It doesn't exactly spell that out here, but I think we could kind of piece that together from broader Scripture. God sees and knows everything and will render perfect justice at the last day. So we don't have to sit around concerned about the fact that justice has been denied to us. It's not going to be denied. It may be delayed. And it may be that the so-called brother who perpetrated the, the injury against us isn't really a, a believer at all. But the fact of the matter is that God sees and God knows everything and God is perfect in His justice and at the right time, He will dispense the exact amount of justice and so we don't need to be concerned. Rather, we're to be patient and to do what the Apostle Paul says. Be wronged. But I would point out that though this is an important alternative... And binding upon Christians, in many cases, I think that there are some uh, cases in which this doesn't apply. And I want to give you three principles this morning to help us uh, think through how this would probably apply in our own life situations. And I don't believe that verse 7 would apply to us, this principle of why not rather be wronged, uh, in cases that have to deal with the good order of God-ordained institutions. Here I'm thinking of Uh, Family. 
obviously, when, um, when a divorce occurs or if there are children involved, there is going to have to be, for the sake of good order in this institution that God has ordained, there's going to have to be a settlement. The believers will have to go to, uh, to fellow believers or to somebody to establish the divorce and to make sure that it's done in an equitable manner and that it's done in a lawful manner and that the children uh, have been assigned to the custody of one of the parents because God has ordained the parents have to train up their children. So this would be an obvious instance in which verse 7 cannot be applied. We cannot look the other way. The care of our children and the, the lawful dissolution of um, marriage contracts has to be done in decent and, and orderly fashion. Another instance in which this uh, particular alternative verse 7 wouldn't apply is the, uh, the situation where a person is required to fulfill God-ordained obligations. And I'm thinking here of situations where uh, uh, the head of the house may be injured in an automobile accident or uh, some other difficulty and he can no longer provide for his family and so financial obligations still have to be met and in cases like that I believe that verse 7 wouldn't be applicable uh, the person who is required to provide for his family uh, has to, he must to go forward and sue for justice and a resolution of the matter so he can fulfill his God-given responsibilities I don't believe that God is requiring families to go utterly destitute out of a a sense of false humility here. One last principle I'd give for applying this particular alternative that Paul lists uh, here in verse 7 is uh, when the injured party has greater resources or means to deal with the insult or injury. I'm thinking of situations that are probably the opposite of what's gone here in 1 Corinthians 6. It seems here that people of greater resources, the few wealthy people that the church did have, it seems were taking uh, the lower socioeconomic members of the congregation of the court. They were defrauding them and they were harming them. What the Apostle Paul is saying that that is wrong, it's injurious, it's insulting, it constitutes an assault upon them. And what he'd say, if there is a problem, the tables should be turned. If one of the lower class members of the congregation has indeed uh, somehow uh, perpetrated some sort of a civil uh, uh, problem against you, what he would say is that the person who has greater resources ought to bear with the difficulty. If you have more money, if you have a higher stature in life, if you have other means of support, other ways of dealing with the problem, what the Apostle Paul is saying in such cases is you need to be wronged. And so Paul gives us two ways to deal with civil disputes and civil problems within the church. Now, it's kind of a technical passage in some ways. It's it's not something that... In fact, you don't find this anywhere else in the New Testament. Any, any other passage really dealing with this issue is obviously a normal, enormous pastoral problem in this congregation. And you say, well, it doesn't really seem very applicable to me this morning. It doesn't seem very engaging or exciting. Um, perhaps most of us are not involved in any civil lawsuit situations, and particularly not with other believers, and it may not feel particularly relevant to us today. 
Well, I would respond first of all by saying, well, it's God-inspired word, it's in here for a purpose, and it ought to absolutely control how we deal with situations uh, where there's uh, civil infractions involved, at least among believers. But what I would invite you to do now as we wind down our message this morning is to look at the principles that underlie uh, this passage and inform the way the Apostle Paul has constructed this prohibition. And I would say that the very first principle which underlies this prohibition and has shaped the Apostle Paul's instruction to the church is that Christians ought to have a greater regard for Christ and His Gospel and His church than we have for ourselves. It seems to me that is an enormous principle that informs this decision that the Apostle Paul has made, the prohibition that he has placed upon members of the congregation. Remember, it's brothers suing brothers before unbelievers. And he's saying that we ought to have such a passionate and such a deep regard for Christ and for His name and for His reputation and for the gospel and for the unity of the church that we would dare not place ourselves and our personal interests and pursuits of justice above Christ. A very difficult thing for us to assimilate and to apply in our day because we live in an age and a society which asserts the self above everybody else. We are a highly individualistic society. It pervades our society, this notion that every individual has the right to assert their individual liberty and their individual right far above any other considerations. Whether that brings a harm to the rest of the community, whether it brings shame and reproach upon their family, whether it causes uh, society-wide difficulties, we place ourselves above other people. This passage challenges us then. As people living in a highly individualistic, selfish society to say that we need to place Christ and His gospel and the reputation of the church above our own personal interests. What does this passage mean to you this morning? If you're not involved in civil litigation among other Christians, it means that you need to at least regard the reputation of Christ above your own. The second thing that this passage means to us is that this passage calls Christians to lead radically distinct lives from the culture around us. That is a principle that emerges repeatedly throughout this passage. Paul makes uh, this call to a radically distinct life evident, first of all in verse 1, when he pairs the unrighteous or the unbeliever against the saints. He makes it clear in how the Christians ought to settle their civil disputes in ways that are distinct and separate from the world around them. He makes that point again in the assumption of verse 4 that uh, we need to have wise Christian judges who are able to be appointed to preside over our cases. And he really brings... The point home with great power and cogency and force in verses 9 through 11 where you contrast the lifestyle of the unrighteous and the radical change that occurs to believers when they come to Christ. There's to be a great change. What this passage calls upon you, and you're going to see this again as we dig into this more uh, deeply and carefully next week when we look at God's commands for sexual purity... What Paul assumes throughout this passage, which emerges at several points, is that Christians are to lead radically distinct lives from the people who are around them. 
I don't mean uh, lives that are just different at the cosmetic level. That's obviously not what we're talking about. And it's obviously not the retreat mentality of Christians that we're to, to circle the wagon somewhere in a, in a Christian commune and stay away from the world because we preached on this last week that the Christians are to engage society and unbelievers all around them or they may build relationships with them to win them to Jesus Christ. So we're not saying that. But the thing that we are saying is that fundamentally and radically and internally and Spiritually, there must be a tremendous distinction between believers and unbelievers. And that distinction is to be made manifest in how we live. You cannot miss the ten sins that Paul spells out here and says these are characteristic of the unrighteous. These are characteristic of the world around you. And they're not to be characteristic of you. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality, theft, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, stealing. By setting up this contrast, when he says such for some of you, it's very evident the Apostle Paul is saying that the appearance of the life of the believer is to be radically distinct. So one of the principles which informs the construction of this prohibition this morning is the call to a clear life of separation from the world in terms of its influences on how we think, how it shapes our desires, how it shapes our attitudes, and how it informs our actions. A distinct way of living. You say, how does this passage apply to me this morning, Pastor Sotel, since I'm not engaged in civil lawsuits? Well, it applies to you in this way. You're called to hear the admonition to live a radically distinct life from the world around you. To not participate in their sins. Thirdly, this passage, in an unexpected place, underscores an enormously important point for us this morning, and that is uh, the amazing glory of the Gospel. I can think of a few verses in the New Testament that I like to think on when I think upon the power of the Gospel. One of them is my favorite, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where it says, And you turn from idols to the true and the living God. To me, that is such a fascinating statement which underscores the power of the Gospel to change people live and to radically reorient them and turn them upside down and inside out and to make them absolutely new kinds of people. But this is also one of those passages, one of the few that would just really profoundly strike anybody when they think about the theme of the power of the Gospel to bring real change. And that theme is obviously struck in verse 11 where the Apostle Paul says, Such were some of you. You cannot miss the fact that the Apostle Paul sees an enormous life change has occurred in the life of these Corinthians. Such were some of you. Such were some of you who participated in this whole list of sins. And you absolutely marvel at that. And you say, the Apostle Paul here is speaking to Christians. How could it be that this church could be full of kind of people who are characterized by the kinds of sins, gross sins, that are spelled out there? 
Well, Paul can say that because these people were radically saved and converted to Jesus Christ. And the whole way they got in that condition into this such-were-some-of-you category that are now washed, that are sanctified, that are justified, is because of Christ through the Gospel changed their life. It's amazing if you just sit and think about the power of the Gospel. Yeah, there's great power in the stories that natural revelation tells us. There's great power in looking upon a beautiful sunset as the sun dips beyond the ocean line and you see the hazy colors on the sky and the reflections across the water. There's great stories in the brilliance of starlit nights of... of, uh, of all these brilliant lights scattered across the canopy of the dark sky. There's a great story in the majesty of the rock formations as you look around the mountains across our state and country. There's also great power in the stories that are told through art and music. People of profound abilities, skillful skillful authors, people who compose beautiful music that's moving, that's provocative, that engages the emotions. But you stop and think about the best that you can find in this world outside of the scriptures. You find that they only temporarily bring change. Motivation and inspiration. What the Apostle Paul says here, such were some of you. Why is there change? It's because of the gospel and its application to the Holy Spirit. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. It's amazing that Paul unloads this glorious message of gospel transformation at the end of this prohibition given to the Corinthians not to sue one another in civil court. And I think that the reason why he's done that is to make everybody walk away from the passage impressed with the most important point of the passage, which is the amazing glory of the gospel. You see, that's what you're to think of when you walk away from this passage, is the amazing glory of the gospel and the marvel of the gospel and the marvel of the effects of the gospel upon the life of the person. Because of that, uh, what he does is call upon the Christian to a life of profound change. The note of that call to profound change is struck very vividly in verse 1. How dare you? Because of the marvel of the gospel, Paul says, how dare you live in any way that is contrary to it, that undermines the force of it, that undermines the preaching of it in society around us, or that undermines the faith of those who hold it. So this morning, we need to hear the admonition, and we need to hear the message of the glorious gospel. And as we walk away wondering and marveling at the gospel, we're at the same time to be reminded of its admonition. Is that we're to have a radically clear 
different and separate life from the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we